Hello, Mr. Dictator. I'm calling to tell you that I've imposed more sanctions. That's gonna bother me a lot on my yacht. Well, we took it away. Only one. I have nine more of those. Fine, but you should know we also kicked you out of the United Nations Human Rights Council. Remind me again what floor of the building that's in. I don't think I've ever had a reason to go there. <sighs> okay, great. Is there anything else? If not, I gotta go blow up some more civilians with rockets and artillery. See you later. Hello, everybody. I'm Neil. I'm Sandra. And today we are talking about Vladimir Putin again, because, well, he is the villain of 2022, is he not? Yeah, he is. Honestly, I don't think he has any competition in this uh, in this area. Not really. Uh, maybe somebody will overtake him later, but uh, he's uh, topping the list so far. So for today's episode, we are going to go back in time a bit, as we are doing history to some degree. Uh, and we're going to talk about Putin's invasion of Chechnya in the early 2000s and Yeltsin's invasion of Chechnya in the 1990s before him when Putin was on Yeltsin's staff. Those were remarkably similar to the invasion of Ukraine going on today. Also talk about the Soviet alliance with Syria and how that led up to Russian intervention in the Syrian civil war in 2015-2016. So that's what we're talking about today. Yep, yep. And we're going to go into looking at the West reaction as well and what's coming next, you know, the butcher of Syria. We have Donbass. It's not looking great. It's not. No, it's really not. It's getting more difficult to predict what happens next. It was fairly easy to sort this stuff out just looking at numbers and capabilities in the first couple of weeks of the Russian invasion when we did our first few Putin-Ukraine episodes, but there's some forks in the road now where things could go different ways. Yes, yes, and some new elements that can play either way. It's going to be complicated, and it just does not seem that things are going to get better. I mean, just that name, the Butcher of Syria, doesn't sit well with me at all. You can imagine, like, if we think we've seen all the horrors there were to see, I think we're uh, delusional. I think it's going to be a little worse before it gets better. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. Yeah, you didn't get that name if you were the nicest guy in the Kremlin, I'm guessing. For sure. And I think we should start by saying clearly that Putin has done all of this before. War crimes and blatant violations of human rights many times over, but the West was not as outraged as it is now, simply because the victims back then were predominantly Muslim. That was the case in Chechnya, where the people he slaughtered were actually fellow Russians, basically. And in Syria as well, he helped his buddy Assad slaughter and gas his own people, civilians. So why the war crimes? Why the war? It works for Putin. He did it all before. And now, just like before, he's winning in Russia. I mean, he's losing internationally. But in Russia, his popularity ratings are 83% right now after invading Ukraine. Yes. And he's not the first. It's not like any of this is new. And, you know, he's sort of employing the same tactics that he got in the Yeltsin administration. But the West had no problem with Boris Yeltsin because Boris Yeltsin was going to give all of 
the Western countries Russia's natural resources for free because they were nice guys. I don't know. That's what it seemed like at the time by my memory was, oh, now the Soviets are gone. Everything's going to be sunshine and roses and we're all going to get rich on Russia. And nobody ever considered, I don't think, that maybe Boris Yeltsin is exactly like any other Soviet premier you might pick from their past. Yeah, very good point. So let's focus on some of the numbers we know so far. Uh, Numbers of civilian casualties in Ukraine, some numbers from Chechnya, and some numbers in Syria. And then we're going to go into the details of these crimes against humanity that Putin has been committing in all of these countries. So Ukraine, so far in Mariupol alone, over 10,000 civilians were killed, according to the city's mayor. It is very hard to actually estimate the total number, but it is clear that whatever number we are thinking of is probably much higher and it's going to keep rising with each passing day because there are people who have not even been found yet, bodies under the rubble. And there are reports, UK and US are verifying those now, of chemical weapons used in Mariupol just Yesterday, so we're recording this on April 12th. So just yesterday, the Russians allegedly used chemical weapons in Mariupol. And this is just Mariupol. Imagine adding up the hundreds and thousands of civilians killed in Kharkiv, Dnipro, Lviv, Mykolaiv, Kiev, and the towns surrounding Kiev, like Bucha and Borodyanka, and the rest of the country. So there is a United Nations casualty update website. We will drop the link in the notes, but keep in mind that that website is not updated in real time, nor does it contain the full number of casualties as many of these people have not been found yet. Every day they find more people, more mass graves. It's absolutely horrific. And I do not even know what the final number could be, but I think it's going to be somewhere close to the Chechnya situation. Yeah, and this is all a significant escalation from the point in time that we did our first episodes about Ukraine. Uh, which has been uh, almost a month ago, I suppose now. At that time, in the first couple of weeks, even though there was quite a bit of outrage about Russia actually invading a country, the first couple of weeks were somewhat reserved in terms of the capability, in terms of equipment, and what they actually did in terms of the number of people dead. It seemed like the first couple of weeks was an attempt to invade the country by a social media flex, which is very on brand for Vladimir Putin. It was a big show of force, but not a lot of actual fighting behind it. Since then, particularly since the Western countries have started to send some more uh, military aid to Ukraine, uh, the number of civilian casualties have increased uh, in response from the Russian side. So it seems like it's Putin acting to see what the West will do and then reacting based on their response. Yeah, and it just seems that his savagery increases directly proportionally to the military aid given by the West and to the Ukrainians' people courage. So the more courageous, the more better they fight, the more they push the Russian troops back, the savagery and cruelty just grows and grows exponentially, it seems. It's like out of frustration, it's almost like he's doing this out of spite, which I mean, I guess he is. 
Yes, pretty much. And it's a pattern. The Russian army is not the American army or the British army, which is more reliant on killing people with things that they don't see, rockets, missiles, stuff like that. Not to say that the Russian army doesn't have those things. They do. But the Russian army is more traditional in that it's very armor-centric and it's very artillery-centric and it is designed tactically to inflict the most damage on the population that they are confronted with to force them to quit, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to mention that even though in the first weeks of the invasion, we didn't see reports of horrendous things coming out of Ukraine. I do not know if they were not happening. It's just that I think we might have not heard about them at the time. Maybe it's just after the Russians retreated from all these little uh, cities and places and towns that they held control over. That's when things started to come to light. So we don't honestly know exactly because they have been targeting civilian um, places like hospitals and maternities from the get-go, like that is not a recent development. I mean, you know, the maternity with the pregnant women and then you had the children's hospital and all that stuff that happened in the first few weeks. So that was already, those were war crimes already. And I would guess a lot of that is just because as as the Russian advance has halted and then retreated a bit and they've lost some territory and gained some other territory, there are more opportunities for... Ukrainian resistance and Russian soldiers to come to each other face to face. Whereas in the initial push that Russia made into Ukraine, they were more trying to cause some sort of negotiation from a distance, it seemed like. They would surround a town and shoot at it, but not necessarily go into it. But now that they've had to move around, there's going to be closer contact, which is probably why we hear more of these stories about just outrageous things being done. Yes, yes, I agree. Now, back to Chechnya. So the numbers of civilians killed and people who disappeared in the Chechen wars vary from 160,000 to 300,000. Now, Chechnya is this tiny Muslim republic in southern Russia with just 1.5 million people. And resistance to Russian rule dates back at least two centuries. People there began fighting for independence after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And the first Chechen war happened between 1994 and 1996. Like Neil said before, Boris Yeltsin unleashed a massive invasion and said he would take Grozny in two days. And guess what? He didn't. Just like Putin now, he said two days. Didn't happen. But eventually Grozny was made one with the ground. Complete destruction. Like Mariupol now. And remarkably... Still, Russia lost the first Chechen war, and Yeltsin government in 1996 signed a peace treaty with Chechnya and removed all Russian troops from the territory and granted broad autonomy to Chechnya, though not entirely formal independence. Yeah, and that was mostly, I would suspect, a response to the Gorbachev administration's loss of Azerbaijan. I mean, we don't need a PhD in geography to figure out why. Because today, in 2020 dollars, 
Azerbaijan's oil exports are worth $120 billion. So that is why Boris Yeltsin was upset about Azerbaijan's independence. They lost the money and they lost the oil reserves. And when Chechnya tried to declare independence, then that was a step beyond that even. It was not a separate republic that had been a Russian territory declaring independence. It was territory within the remaining Russian Federation that was trying to break off. And so that prompted their brutal reaction to the notion of Chechnya gaining independence from Russia. Yeah, so in the first Chechen war alone, the numbers of people who were murdered or disappeared vary, again, between 70,000 and 100 plus thousand. And as we see from history, we can never get a full picture of the actual extent of casualties and civilians killed just because there is no way to quantify that very accurately. And I think this, unfortunately, will be the case in Ukraine too. It's just there are so many people that have been murdered or disappeared that I do not think even with the technology we have now, everybody has mobile phones and everybody can, you know, film and document all these war crimes. Even now, I think we are going to just have, in the end, estimates. Yes, because you have a scattering of people. I always look at these things and try to, to whatever degree you can, put yourself in the other person's shoes. And if you have grown up in Ukraine and all you have seen throughout your entire life is the threat of East versus West and you being in the middle, if this is what prompted you to take the clothes on your back and the dog and the kids and walk to Hungary or walk to Romania or whatever it is, you have to think, are you going to go back? You know, if your city has been leveled by artillery, are you going to go back? Um, A lot of people just won't go back. I know people say that they you know, love their home country and everybody thinks that, you know, this will get sorted out and, you know, go back to normal. But that's the the hard reality is a lot of people just don't go back. And it wasn't a war, but I'm from New Orleans and I saw that during Katrina, you know, people have to leave because of some terrible tragedy. And no matter how much they love home, a lot of people are just never coming back. Yeah, first of all, because if this lasts for a long time, all these people, which, by the way, I think, according to the latest reports, there are over 4.3 million people that have been displaced. So 4.3 million refugees that fled to other countries, and still many are still trying to get out. So once they get to other countries, these people start slowly, slowly, you know, building a semblance of a life for themselves and uh, maybe get a job in the first few months. And find a place to live. Um, So then after a year, maybe their lives are already, you know, there. It's, It's hard to go back when you know there is nothing left of your house, of your apartment. There is nothing. And I mean, even if, you know, I hope they will rebuild and I hope everything will be fine. And some people, by the way, I saw reports, some people are returning even now, you know, to cities and towns in Ukraine. They are going back now to the cities that have been liberated, right? But it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. We're talking about millions of people that have been displaced by this war. It's a tough thing. I don't know what I would do in that situation. 
I would probably, just me personally, stay going because I don't think anything's going to change. The idea of East versus West and a constant struggle uh, between Russia and Western Europe and prior to that, the Soviet Union and Western Europe has always been there. And I don't think it's going to go away because of this. Even if there is some sort of truce arranged, it's not going to be any different. It's not like they're going to get along all of a sudden. So Ukraine is still going to be stuck in the middle after all this is over. No, I agree. Unless, to be honest, I think the only way that the Ukrainian people that have left could come home and not worry about the future and about this happening again is if Ukraine is admitted immediately into the European Union and most importantly in NATO. And about Putin, I do not think he wants to negotiate. I do not think he ever wanted to negotiate because he does not seem to understand the meaning of the term negotiation. I think in in his mind, negotiation is give me your country or else I'm going to slaughter you all. I think that's where he stands. I mean, it's pretty obvious. I don't think this, these are the actions of a man who is looking for a diplomatic answer. Doesn't seem so to me. <laughs> Not at this point, no. It may have been that way 20 years ago. Um, I don't know that most people know this. There was a point in the early 2000s, late 1990s, when Yeltsin was gone and Putin was the new Russian president And the UK and the US did not have a problem with Vladimir Putin in his first few years. He was seen as the good guy in Russia because he was against the same uh, international jihad Muslim terrorists that they were against. And Putin brought up the idea of let's just allow Russia into NATO and make it a united force against Muslim terrorism? And the answer was flat out no. So it may have been an idea of his at that time, but we're well past that now. I don't think that's in the cards. No. And I think even then I have uh, my suspicions regarding his uh, willingness to, you know, dangling the carrot of Russia joining NATO and Russia looking to the West and uh, trying to get on this Western-oriented path. Even then, I think it was uh, a dishonest proposal. I think he was playing the long game. I do not see Putin as ever shedding his ideological goals. And I I just do not trust him. I literally do not trust him uh, at all. I think whatever he says cannot be taken for granted. He is still the KGB guy at the end of the day. Yes. And before we move on, I want to tell our listeners that we have two really relevant premium episodes, relevant to today's discussion, I mean. One episode is about Putin's time in East Germany as a young KGB officer and his work with the Stasi, his connections to terrorists like Carlos the Jackal. And the other premium episode is about how Putin came to power and how he killed Russians in their sleep in the Moscow apartment bombings in 1999. He did that to be able to blame the Chechens and start the war with Chechnya. And then he had the FSB gas Russian men, women and children in the theater hostage crisis to again 
be able to continue the war against Chechnya. Those are insane stories that you guys need to hear. It will put everything in perspective. So if you're not a premium subscriber yet, and if you want to support us and hear more of us by getting two extra episodes a month, please subscribe on dubiouspod.com or by clicking the link in the episode notes. We don't use Patreon, so the signing up subscription process is the easiest in the world. Takes you three seconds to subscribe. Well, 10 seconds at the most. So dubiouspod.com, click subscribe and enjoy the premium episodes. And we'll do you one better. First of all, thank you all for listening. We did not expect to grow so fast, but we have, and we need your feedback. So do one of two things. Head to our private Facebook group by going to facebook.com slash dubious pod and clicking on the join group button up at the top of the page. When you get into our private group, there will be a coupon code at the top for the first 50 uses that will give you 50% off of the normal price of our premium episodes forever. Alternatively, go straight to our website at dubiouspod.com and click subscribe. After you create your account and land on the checkout page, the same coupon code will be there as well. So type in the coupon code at checkout and you'll get half off forever. And most importantly, after you've done that, talk to us. Leave comments on the episode pages on our site or leave us posts in the Facebook group and let us know what you think. We want to hear from you. Yes, yes, a lot of people are listening to us and, you know, they're not in the Facebook group as of yet because we just created it, but I do think that's going to be the place where people are going to find out also, like, more things we're going to do in advance and they're going to find out before anybody else does. So, yeah. Now, the second Chechen war happened between 1999 and... Well, depending on how you look at it, you could say it ended in 2000 because that's when the Russians actually established a presence and a uh, a stronghold in Chechnya. Like they were, they took control of the country. But officially, the war ended in 2009. There were still a lot of other battles happening. The point is, even in this second Chechen war, the numbers of those killed or missing, they are so high. I mean, we're talking about. 60 to 100 plus thousand. It's, you know, again, an estimation. Nobody, actually nobody knows for sure how many civilians were killed, how many disappeared. It's all an estimate. And I think that's such a scary thought. These are people with families. It's unbelievable to think that some of them, we might never know if they died or if they were taken to Russia somewhere in filtration camps like we've seen in Ukraine. It's, it's just insanity. As you said before, this is a small region and a small population to begin with. Like there are American cities with three or four times the population of all of Chechnya. There are Chinese cities with 10 times the population of Chechnya. So... 100,000 people out of a million and a half is a, uh, is a particularly large number of dead for a military action so late in the 20th century and into the 21st century. Yeah, just, just mind-blowing. And it speaks to the cruelty of the Russian military and Putin, because Putin was the one who started the Second Chechen War. He was the one responsible for all the deaths of these many tens of thousands of people. A thing that I read in researching this episode, so when Boris Yeltsin assembled his 
ministers to take a vote on whether or not they would intervene in Chechnya the first time. There was one out of the group that was going to object to the Russian military advancing into Chechnya. And this one minister wanted to speak before the vote. And Yeltsin told him flat out, no, you vote first and then you can speak after. And if you want to be the one guy that stands out voting no, then you go right ahead and we will hear what you have to say for yourself after in so many words. You want to be the one guy to go against everybody else? Let me know how that works out for you. We will vote first and we will listen after if you still want to talk. And as it turns out, that's happened recently, has it not? Mm-hmm. Actually, I was surprised to see Putin's attitude towards his generals and the people in charge when he consulted, quote-unquote, with them about starting the war. Basically, it was Putin at this table, not one of the long ones, a regular desk, right? And all these important people were sitting in front of him on chairs in a semicircle like kindergarten students. <laughs> but I'm not joking, it was surreal. They were about... I think, 50 feet away from him in a semicircle on their little chairs with their hands on their knees. And they had to each stand up and go and speak into a microphone and tell Putin why he should start a war in Ukraine. Basically, Putin put out the show trying to show the world that it's not him who wants to start the war. It's his generals, it's the people from the FSB, it's the GRU, it's the ministers. And one of them, I think it was the GRU guy, actually, surprisingly, was not so convincing about the war. <laughs> and Putin, Putin pretty much made that man tremble. I have never seen anything like it. It was just unbelievable. We're going to drop the link in the, in the notes. But that was the meeting where Putin officially decided to invade Ukraine because, you know, his people begged him. It wasn't his decision. Exactly. That's the same reason, according to the Moscow Times, that he's still president because the astronaut that proposed the amendment to the Russian constitution to allow Putin to be president two more times, she had to submit that that proposal because there was too much public demand for Vladimir Putin. She just could not tell the people no. It's it's unbelievable. The propaganda is, is insane. And the, the worst part of it is that the Russian people believe it because there is no other news source. Everything is state controlled. So that's what they hear. That's what they believe. And that's why his approval ratings are now 83% because the Russian people believe that the Russian army is denazifying Ukraine. It is insanity. Well, not only that, but they're the ones who suffer the sanctions. He does not. So yeah. if you, again, I mean, in fairness, I always, like I said, I always try to put myself in other people's shoes. If I'm a random Russian farmer or factory worker, and I'm the one who can't get something that I used to get a month ago, and I'm the one suffering the sanctions and... I mean, regardless of whose fault it is, I don't have to be a geopolitical expert to work in a Moscow factory. I do know that it is sanctions from countries that are not here that are the reason why I can't get milk and eggs or whatever I want. So, I mean, is it surprising that he's popular in his home country? That's that's sort of his M.O. He flexes on Western countries, and when they respond... 
the Russian people suffer for it, and then he can say, see, they have done this to you. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable the length to which he would go to consolidate and stay in power. But back to our uh, episode on the war crimes, Syria. Now, this is another uh, another situation where Putin could have maybe not get involved, but, you know, he can't leave his buddy Assad, the dictator, all alone to face his own people. So in support of Bashar al-Assad, <coughs> sorry, <clears throat> so in support of Bashar al-Assad, Russia committed war crimes in Syria too, especially during the battle for Aleppo in 2016 when Russian aircraft targeted medical facilities, used airstrikes on civilian targets, and, of course, cluster munitions. So, just like now, we've seen all this stuff before, and the civilian toll as far as it could be determined. We're talking again, thousands of civilians killed by Russia. In fact, there is a United Nations report who found Russia guilty of war crimes in Syria. And the West's reaction was, at the time, mostly, you know... Very restrained, even though it might have seemed outrageous on TV. But again, the sanctions were slapped on the wrist. Nothing really of consequence for Putin. Nothing that would deter him from doing this in the future again. That intervention in Syria was a good example of the limits of Western sort of military ideology in terms of If you're going to impose a thing on an enemy, you have to be willing to enforce it. Back then, the idea was, we'll just declare one of those no-fly zones that are in the news in the last month over all of Europe and only specific to Russian aircraft. And cleverly, Putin hid close air support fighters underneath an Antonov cargo jet and just flew it to Damascus anyway. They did that multiple times. And it's another one of those things that he is, I mean, he's clever. You have to give him that. And nobody's turning away an Antonov because it's probably bringing parts somewhere that they needed a month ago. And so that's how they got all of their MiG fighter bombers into Syria. And once they're there, well, they're there. You're not going to get them out so they can do whatever they want. And that's what they did. Yeah, because those Antonovs are so big that they are the only planes that could carry Boeing 737 parts, let's say, and everybody, all countries need parts. So it's the only way to get those parts, right? So nobody would probably stop an Antonov. Yeah. Yeah. You can go see an Antonov in Kansas anytime near the Boeing factory. They're there all the time. Yes, Putin is evil, but he is smart. He's not a stupid man. So let's discuss Putin's actual war crimes and human rights abuses and violations that he's been doing in Ukraine, which, by the way, are pretty much the same things he has done before in Chechnya and in Syria. So before we get into it, I would like to point out that these are intentional and done on order. These war crimes are not the one-off or some rogue soldiers doing unspeakable things. There are recorded communications between Russian soldiers and their superiors. And you can actually hear the Russian commanders telling the soldiers to kill all civilians in a village, wipe them off. And the Russian soldiers said, look, these are civilians. These are regular people. 
And the response was, can't you hear me? Are you stupid? Wipe them all off. Ukraine is a page from the same playbook as in Chechnya and Syria. So we're talking targeting civilians, schools, maternities, hospitals, blocks of flats, torture. Unfortunately, there are credible reports of torture coming out of Ukraine, like people's tongues being ripped out, limbs cut off, eyes burnt. And there was a torture chamber that was discovered in Bucha. You know, executions of civilians with their hands tied behind their backs. Women raped in front of their children. Some of these women are now disappeared. Bombing and shooting at civilian evacuation corridors. Use of cluster munitions. And there is talk that Russian forces are bringing in now mobile crematoria to burn the people they kill. And unverified reports of chemical weapons used in Mariupol. We'll see what the result on that is, but I wouldn't put it past Putin. In fact, I'm pretty sure at this point that this probably happened. Also, we're talking about filtration camps. So Russian forces are sending Ukrainian citizens to filtration camps before forcibly relocating them to Russia. And also a lot of children taken from Ukraine are already being put up for adoption in Russia. Now, we are talking about airstrikes on train stations, just like we saw in Kramatorsk last week. And I don't even know how to get to this part. I'm going to do my best, but now I finally understand the meaning of the word unspeakable, because I honestly do not know how to even go about this and how to, to say these words. So... Children, girls, younger than 10 years old, raped. And when I say that, whatever you imagine, multiply by a thousand, because I can't get into it, but it's more than what you think. It's more horrible. And the doctors who took care of them afterwards were absolutely shocked by what they have seen. Now, there is also an image that I can't get out of my mind, and it's a man who's still on his bicycle, dead on the ground, and his dog is waiting patiently nearby. Just give me a second. And his dog is waiting patiently nearby and waiting for his human, you know, to stand up and take him home. And I just, for the life of me, can't get that image out of my head. I honestly, I don't know. I keep thinking about the dog. I hope he's okay. I hope someone took him and rescued him. Neil and I, we both have pets, dogs and cats. So, you know, obviously we it's implied that our, heart, our hearts break for the people, for the children. But also when we see the, the, the destruction and the horrible things that affect every living thing in that country, it's, it's, it's just too much. And one thing that really broke me, there's this five, six-year-old little kid, a boy, and he's placing two cans of food on his mother's grave. This was like a fresh grave among a bunch of other makeshift graves, and she had died of starvation in Mariupol, and the child was bringing her food so that she's not hungry anymore. Okay, I need to break Neil. I have a dog and I have a daughter and not that specific order. And the only reason for me to get out of bed every day is a daughter and a dog. So it's, there is no good. There's no such thing as a good war. 
and anybody on any American news network who used to work for the DOD or the CIA or the Bush administration or whoever it is that tries to tell you there's a good guy and a war is wrong. There is no such thing as a good war. If you're the guy standing there watching your daughter or your wife raped and murdered, I don't think you are uh, a party to the cause of the good war. No, there's no such thing as a good war. But look, I so I understand no war is beautiful. Or there, but I do believe that there should be some limits. I mean, look, the Russians also killed dogs and puppies, shot them dead. There is a video online from a shelter. They've they've done that for absolutely no reason. They've done horrific things, including you know burning dogs in the streets and. Again, like the 10-year-old girls. I mean, these things are just... Un- why? Why Why would you do that? I, it's, it's inhumane. What kind of... What's the scope of that? What's the purpose of that? Other than... Why, what do they think? That they're going to break the Ukrainians? No, I don't think. What I think is going to happen is they're going to find a hundred times more and they're going to resist even more and they're going to be more determined to to push the Russians out of their country. I don't see the point killing puppies and doing horrendous things to children. What is the point of that? The same reason that that happened in Vietnam and the same reason it happened in a dozen South American countries that have been taken over by either military coup or drug cartel or whatever it is. When you turn your enemy into less than human, the purpose is to convince your soldier that there's no reason to care about any of them because you're not going to go do that yourself. You're going to have them do it. So that's, that's the purpose is for the target of your political aspiration that's in your way to be less than human. And sadly, you know, a 22-year-old soldier who gets sent to Ukraine is not going to be the child of one of the billionaires that hangs around the Kremlin all day. He's just going to be some kid from the countryside. And he doesn't know any better than what he's told. That is true. And also, I feel that Putin is definitely using... Russia's youth as cannon fodder as well. As you said, they're not the children of oligarchs. No, these are people who come from regions of Russia where there is not a lot of employment, there is a lot of alcoholism, there is a lot of poverty, and I do believe a lot of lack of education, which all of it plays into, you know, these kids because they're young at the end of the day doing all these horrific things because you know it's allowed I guess there are no repercussions and also out of frustration but it's look what bothers me the most is that we have Ukrainian mothers who are writing their family contacts on on the backs and the arms of their children just in case they get killed and the child survives and the Western countries are still debating gas and oil and, uh, you know, sanctions and what. Uh, I mean, I, I, 
so even the sanctions that they imposed have not had any lasting effect to the negative on Russia at all. And I say to the negative because the argument could be made that in the long run, it's probably a net profit. So I was listening to an interview this week with a journalist named Ben Aris, who is uh, from BNE Intellinews. Uh, and his Twitter is uh, BNE Editor. And he had some great breakdown of the financial impact of these sanctions. When you consider gas price increases due to this conflict in the light of that loophole that it still allows them to export oil and gas, at the end of the day, they very well make, make a profit from the war. Look, at some point in this war, a few weeks ago, it seemed at that moment in time that finally help was arriving and the necessary weaponry and the necessary military aid was there and more was being sent. And things, to me at that point, seemed to be optimistic. I mean, obviously... There were still horrible things happening. There were uh, cities being bombed and airstrikes going on. But it seemed that at that time there was more hope. But what happened next is Putin escalated with these horrific war crimes. And now it seems that, again, the West is scrambling to react and I feel that this is a position that we don't. I don't think it's good for the West, for NATO, for the European Union to be in this position of constantly trying to react and find the best solution to respond to things that Putin does. And these responses, more often than not, are just not enough. And I mean, look, the war crimes in Bucha, in Borodyanka, in Mariupol, in Kharkiv, etc. These are depravity. These are savagery. This is another thing that really gets me very mad. A lot of people are calling the Russians animals. No, animals do not do this. It's only humans who do this stuff. We are the only species capable of such disgusting and unconscionable acts. So, I don't know. I feel like this is nothing new. Russia has always done this. Putin didn't happen in a vacuum. The West allowed him over time to get bolder and bolder by not imposing stringent actions and sanctions with Crimea, for example. That was when we dropped the ball massively. We discussed all this in Ukraine part one, so people can hear more about that there. But so far, we have millions of people who have been displaced by this war. We have innumerable dead civilians children that were tortured as well as adults. We have even animals have been killed on purpose. It's absolute insanity. It's it's I don't have words for this. Say something because I'm just I don't I don't know what to say anymore. And it's cheap. Smart bombs cost a lot of money. Fighter jets cost a lot of money. Missiles cost a lot of money. Telling a bunch of Russian soldiers that they're going to denazify Ukraine and ordering them to march into a village and kill everybody in it face to face is cheap. You only got to feed the soldier. That's why they do it that way. That is a very cynical but good point. That is the truth. Yes, sadly, it is the truth, I think. But look, some good news, because I want to get back to a better mental state so that we can continue the episode. But some good news came out of Bucha and Borodyanka too. 
a lot of people and pets have been rescued from under the rubbles, and a few kitties were saved by Ukrainian rescue workers, and they even got adopted by these wonderful people. And there's the story of the dog who got lost during the attacks in Bucha, and he and his human got separated at the time, but they've been reunited eventually, and that video of their reunion went viral, and the dog's happy vocals are everything. Like, we posted that video on our social media. So yeah, I mean, these are these stories are a small ray of light coming out of the darkness Russia unleashed over Ukraine. You know, good news is good news. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. better than what's on top of Google and Twitter on any given day, usually, because uh, it's usually bad. And ironically, speaking of sanctions, there's more on that as well that we did not consider when this all started. Putin's sanctions may have a little more teeth than we gave him credit for as well. In the interview I mentioned with Ben Aras, he was talking about how 85% of Egypt's grain comes from Ukraine and Russia. So within the next 90 days, Egypt's going to have no bread. 30% is the target increased price for a can of Coca-Cola in the next 90 days as well because such a large amount of the world's aluminum supply comes from Russia, and the price of aluminum cans is going to go up. Virtually all of the world's titanium stockpile comes from Russia, which is, well, jet turbine fans. So the aerospace industry worldwide is going to suffer in not being able to overhaul their jets because there's no Russian titanium. All of these things are so interconnected since World War II that once a war gets going, there are so many parts and pieces in play and so many things are affected that the notion of West imposing sanctions on East or vice versa and it only affecting the target of the sanctions is just absolutely ridiculous. Everybody trades with everybody. Everything is always affected. So there's no outcome to this at this point where nobody suffers. Everybody suffers to some degree. Yes, I completely agree. And I do believe, though, that in Egypt's case, the other uh, countries are going to find a solution to where that situation will be solved. I mean, if everybody else, I don't know signs a new treaty or like some kind of agreement with Egypt, they give them like maybe 1% of their own product. It's fine. I think that's going to be taken care of. As for the Coke situation, well, you know what? People in Western countries better, better. I don't want to hear a word about it. Like you don't, you don't like that it's a little more pricier, the can of Coke. Well, you're going to drink less Coke. That's the end of it. I, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, putting sanctions, I do not think, come near as close as, as, as importance and effect as the West sanctions on Russia, which again are not enough, but they are much more effective, I would say. I think it's it's still a matter of we need to do more than that. It's just not enough. We're still reacting because the sanctions were good two weeks ago, the, the really stringent ones. At the time, along with the military aid, that seemed to be a good solution, things were looking up, you know, things were going the right way, but then Putin flexed again and he 
counterattacked, quote unquote, with these horrible war crimes. And now we have to scramble to respond again. And I don't feel the response is what I expected. Let me put it that way. Ultimately, I think this is headed towards one of the major European Union countries has got to step up and take some initiative. And let's be honest, that's Germany. It's not anybody else. It's Germany. It's not France. You know, Macron has got his own problems. He's had constant protests since he's been in office, and he's not the kind of person to uh, take that initiative. It's got to be the Germans. The Germany's ultimately responsible for the EU's economy. They regulate it themselves, uh, regardless of any other, you know, nice things on paper about cooperation. The Germans are in charge of the central bank and they make the rules. You know, the Germans have to arrive at the point where they're willing to commit more than everybody else. And I don't see much change until that happens. Because as you say, everything Putin does is a flex. And the flex is not just to be on the news and um, get himself popularity with his own people. The purpose of the flex is also to gauge the Western response and know what to do next. And his first plan did not work, mostly because of Turkey's drones that were delivered to the Ukrainians that the Russian radar could not see. So he had to back off of his initial plan of pushing into Kiev real quickly with armor. That did not work. Yeah, that's one dictator that didn't uh, <laughs> that yes. didn't side with Putin. I was I was actually surprised. I'll be honest by Erdogan's uh, reaction and you know helping Ukraine and stuff. I think yeah, I think we were talking about this, and you made a good point when we were talking on the phone that he's looking at the European Union for Turkey. Again, this yeah. is an example of how everything is connected. When Azerbaijan got their independence, there was a pipeline to bring oil and gas from that country across Turkey to the Middle East and the rest of Europe. So the oil supply angle on this is ever present. It is the thing. When the Soviets lost Azerbaijan, then that changed Turkey's allegiance to some degree. Since then, Turkey has tried to become a member of the EU and their drone uh, supply to the Ukrainians has surely raised their status with the EU member nations because, well, it allowed the Germans to rest comfortably in their BMWs and Mercedes and not have to deal with this themselves. So Turkey is independent from influence of worse places because of Azerbaijan independence to some degree. So all these things fit together. There's no independent actors in the world anymore. Yes, and actually the Turkish drones have become a symbol of the Ukrainian resistance. I've seen videos of Ukrainian uh, soldiers singing songs about the uh, Bayraktar drones from Turkey. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's, this is, we were talking about that early on that, you know, these drones are a big deal. And this is another change in how wars are fought. And since then, there's a Ukrainian song about drones. So I guess, uh, yeah, we may have been right about that one. I suppose there's already a song about drones. Yeah. But uh, it is. I mean, the Russian army, it's basically heavy cavalry. And. Well, for those who uh, may also have read their Shakespeare, uh, they surely know this, but spoiler alert for those who have not, 
Uh, heavy cavalry did not go well for the French when they were invaded <laughs> by Henry V. So, very similarly, a, uh, a Renaissance version of a drone, uh, an arrow shot by a crossbow or a bow and arrow, does quite a bit of damage to a fat guy on a horse. So, <laughs> the Russian tank convoys are basically the military equivalent of heavy cavalry from Henry V, and it's not going any better for them than it was going for, uh, you know, for the Dauphin. Yes, and I, I can only hope uh, this trend is going to keep going this way, bad for the Russians. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think the next big thing on the horizon is whether or not Ukraine convinces themselves to try to push east into the Donbass region and or Crimea. And uh, I don't know how that's going to go. If that happens, I think that's what Putin wants them to do off the top of my head. And I think it's a gigantic trap that the Ukrainians should consider very carefully before they fall into. Um, because it seems to me that Putin is retreating from areas he controlled very intentionally and openly in the hopes that Ukrainian military forces might chase him east in the hope of reconquering territory that they previously lost. And if that's his plan and that's what the Ukrainian forces do, then they will get encircled in the Donbass and every one of them will die in there. So I hope that's not the outcome. Yeah, I, I think Donbass is the next big battle. I think that's where this war is going to be settled. I, I, I do believe that the Ukrainians are going to have the intelligence they need and the weaponry they need to fight that war successfully. But I do believe we are going to see yet many, many, many casualties and horrible things happening. The Donbass is the next thing to watch for sure. There's a, a long convoy, about 13 kilometers uh, convoy of Russian tanks and military going to Donbass right now. So yeah, that's the next big thing to watch. Sadly, Ukraine has a lot of experience when it comes to war crimes prosecutions. Lviv University is actually the alma mater of the two lawyers who came up with the legal concepts of prosecutions at Nuremberg for genocide and crimes against humanity. In fact, one of those former law students of Lviv University was working with the Allied powers in 1942 preparing for the prosecutions while members of his family in Lviv were rounded up and killed because they were Jewish. And it's such an irony that now Putin is saying Ukrainians are the Nazis. It is insane. And these two great lawyers, whose names we should all know are Rafael Lemkin, who introduced the term genocide in international law, and Hersch Lauterpacht, who introduced the concept of crimes against humanity into international law. So I think this is a good point to make. And, you know, about war crimes, some people say, well, prosecuting war crimes takes years, sometimes even decades. Yeah, that's true. And we saw in the Slobodan Milosevic case, it took almost 10 years for him to get extradited and put on trial for the horrors he did in Bosnia. 
but he died in prison before the trial concluded. Still, others involved were tried and thrown in prison forever, and justice is justice, it is meaningful even years later, and crimes against humanity and genocide must be documented, prosecuted, and tried. No doubt about that, but I think, more importantly, they should be prevented. And right now, NATO and the Western powers can do more to prevent crimes against humanity in Ukraine. In this case, I'm not holding my breath because Slobodan Milosevic was in charge of a very small country and he was particularly brash and on top of being small. A loud short guy can easily get into a bar fight. A loud, gigantic NFL linebacker guy, not so much. Nobody's so anxious to fight him. I'm not holding my breath on any Russian commanders or Russian politicians being put in front of a war crimes trial just because they're Russian. So I don't know. I am uh, I am on the fence about the usefulness of war crimes prosecutions. Really, the only time that has been done with some semblance of success against a world power was when we prosecuted Nazi officers. It hasn't been since. It's always been larger countries, wealthier countries prosecuting a dictator from a smaller country. So I'm not I'm not holding my breath on this one. Yeah, true. But the siege of Mariupol and the total destruction of the city by Russian forces while people are starving in there, dying of dehydration as there is less and less water available. This this should have been a turning point. If not Mariupol, the Bucha massacre should have definitely changed the West's response. This didn't happen. Putin is fighting an asymmetric war. Our responses are disconnected. He's doing depraved, unthinkable things, and we respond in a civilized manner with sanctions. It's not working, and innocents are dying every single day. Will the use of chemical weapons by Russia be the game changer? What more horrific things is NATO and the world willing to tolerate? What other crimes against humanity are Western leaders going to watch from their offices before actually doing something concrete and significant about it? Where is that line in the sand? Is there a line in the sand at all? At this point, I'm asking myself, I'm asking you, is there a line in the sand? How long is this going to go on? I don't know. I, that's the answer is I don't know, because nothing has bothered them yet. And really, is it surprising that Putin enjoys massive popularity at home and the Western uh, country leaders are criticized for their inaction? No, not really, because what else can you take away except that they are more concerned with their office and their supply of Russian resources and their business, whatever it is, and its profitability than any raped 10-year-old girl in Ukraine. They are. So, at least to this point. So, maybe that will change again. I mean, maybe the Germans will change their tune. But... Until they do, then that's all somebody can take away is that, yeah, their gas in their nice car is more important to them than piles of dead bodies in the Ukraine. 
this is just heartbreaking. And I think the European Union needs to stop buying gas and oil from Russia. And more likely than not, Russia will probably even stop giving them gas as soon as winter comes, just to flex, you know. So Europe must move fast and find alternatives. United Nations need to kick Russia out of the Security Council. NATO and POTUS must exclude all Russian banks from SWIFT, not just some. And we need to send Zelensky the place he's been asking for. You know, Ukraine knows better than anyone what Ukraine needs. So if they ask for something, give them everything they need need fast they shouldn't even be asking they should have so much stuff from nato that they ask us to stop sending things for a while and a humanitarian no-fly zone corridor i don't think that's an escalation putin only understands force so put some damn warships in the black sea in international waters we are not doing enough and no putin won't start world war three he's evil not stupid or suicidal we need to get over this world war three paranoia the russian economy barely can withstand this war and they can't defeat the ukrainians it's obvious they wouldn't sustain a global war not to mention that world war three is mutually assured destruction nobody would emerge as a winner from that so no putin knows that as well he wants start World War Three, So I don't know. I feel there is so much more we can do and we're not. And if the world learns anything from this is that we need to go green and fast. Green, clean energy. That's the answer so that we are not dependent on Russia anymore in the future. Yeah. The funny thing about one of the things you just mentioned. So when the threat was first introduced of kicking Russia out of SWIFT, Russia set up their own payment network in alliance with China. And it's not very good, but it works. And so right now, today, April 12th, as we record this, 2022, a MasterCard still works in Moscow, despite Russian banks not being participants in the Western bank clearing system. Because MasterCard doesn't want to lose business with China. MasterCards need to work in China. So you can shop in Moscow with your American credit card today. It will just go through the Russian and Chinese bank clearing system instead of SWIFT. And again, this is an example of, you know, Putin is a practical person. He is not, he's not in this for the next election. He's not in this to make um, one of his billionaire cronies happy. They have no power. They are completely under his thumb. That's the deal. You know, they do what he says and he allows them to be rich. So he doesn't have to worry about what they think. Everything he does is with a practical purpose in mind. And he is ahead of everybody else to some degree, even if he doesn't have the resources that Western countries have he does have the initiative, and nobody has taken that from him because they all are still afraid of what they might lose. Yeah, or of being thrown in prison and never seeing the light of day again, or poisoned or, you know, whatever he does to people who oppose him and criticize him. Yeah. So some of the similarities and motivations for these wars we've been discussing about and for the human rights violations we've been uh, going through. So the war crimes, as we saw, are pretty much the same in all the wars. And the propaganda coming out of Kremlin is the same. Like during the Chechen wars, the Chechens were dehumanized and depicted by Russian propaganda as, I quote, bandits, terrorists, cockroaches and bedbugs. 
Mm, I'm not even going to comment. So the Russian armed forces did horrendous things to people in Chechnya, and now the Ukrainians are Nazis this time. That's what the Kremlin is saying. So obviously there's a clear parallel here. And the denial and then false accusations against the countries he invaded and the West are the same. Again, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, said in regards to the war crimes in Ukraine, I quote, it is a simply well-staged show, a tragic show. I repeat once again, the entire course of events, huge amount of data, facts and other parameters do clearly witness that this is a forgery conducted to try and denigrate the Russian army. Ugh, cry me a river. I, I, <laughs> the, the nerve. It's really hard to comment on this stuff because I feel like saying things that won't be able to be included in the podcast. You know what I mean? Like, I'm refraining myself here. And <laughs> I mean, you really, I don't know. It's, it, yeah, I know it's terrible to laugh, but. Well, it's, I mean, what can you do? What else can you I, do? I, yes. It's, it, it's insane. <laughs> it really <It's>, is. <laughs> and these wars, you know, they were started just like the annexation of Crimea, for example, when Putin's approval ratings inside Russia were not great. Obviously, not only for that reason, he wants the territory, right? He has dreams of recreating the USSR, you know, this former glory thing, whatever. But popularity is important to him because, as you said, inside Russia, his power is still absolute and he's winning there. Everybody loves him, 83% of the people. So, again, why would he be deterred if the sanctions are not too, you know, stringent? He's doing great at home. I mean, another common denominator for all these wars and war crimes. And this is like a recent development. The Butcher of Syria. And this guy, his name is Alexander Dvornikov. He's a general. He was just appointed by Putin two days ago to lead the war in Ukraine. And he fought in Chechnya, of course. He commanded a regiment in the Second Battle of Grozny in 1999 under Putin's command and killed thousands of civilians. And by the way, he's also believed to be the man behind the uh, attack in the railway station a few days ago in Ukraine. And ever since, he's been doing a bunch of horrible things everywhere where he served. And in Syria, he gained this reputation of being a butcher of civilians. And that's what he's known for, attacking and decimating civilian targets using whatever methods available, including ones condemned by international courts and banned. So he helped level Aleppo while Assad was using chemical weapons from... I mean, it's just insane. Obviously, at the end, he was awarded the title of Hero of the Russian Federation for his role in Syria. Yeah, I mean, Aleppo is... Particularly egregious because so Aleppo is the birthplace of Saladin and Saladin in the Muslim world as a historic figure, a historic military commander is something like Henry V and uh, Dwight Eisenhower and uh, and Montgomery all rolled into one. You know, Saladin is a historic hero in the Muslim world because he successfully uh, took back Jerusalem from the Christian crusaders. And for a Muslim country to welcome a Russian army 
to bomb Aleppo. I mean, how do they recruit more jihadis? <laughs> That's a very good point. I mean, they, That's a very... so how do you convince people that we are uh, doing Allah's will when we invite Russians to come purge the jihadis from Saladin's birthplace? Uh, that's a pretty tough sell. I don't know that I can make that speech. I, I guess when dictators come together, anything can happen. I guess that's the answer. I mean, Assad and Putin together, that's that's the insanity you get. Yeah. And let's be honest, the Russians have no faith in ideology there either. The reason the Russians are concerned with Syria is because the Soviets have had a naval base there for like 40 years. And that's their only ally on that coast. So they're not giving up their naval base. And if they lost the country to an unfriendly new dictator, then they wouldn't have their naval base anymore. That was the only Russian concern, I assure you. So uh, there's no ideology in the part of Russia helping Assad either. It's purely... Uh, strategy motivated. Again, Putin is doing in Russia whatever he wants. Just yesterday, so April 11, he arrested Vladimir Karamurza. The FSB, by the way, poisoned him twice already, but they couldn't kill him. Well, he's now in prison, just like Alexei Navalny, and not likely to be released soon. Karamurza just a few days ago gave an interview to MSNBC and he was talking about the muzzle Putin has put on all Russian media and the Russian people and he referred to the fact that if you say the word war, you get 15 years in prison. Basically, after the horrors of Bucha and Borodyanka, Russia has been finally kicked out of the United Nations Human Rights Council, so not the Security Council. What's interesting is that as they were being expelled, Russia announced that they're withdrawing voluntarily from the Human Rights Council. <laughs> and there are reports of Russian diplomats trying to force the hand of several, of several nations to vote against expelling Russia. And they circulated this note threatening consequences for all the states that would vote against them. It didn't work. I mean, kicking them out of the Human Rights Council is okay. But as far as I'm concerned, the fact that Russia is still, still, as we record this episode, a permanent member with veto power on the United Nations Security Council is a perversion. This is obscene. If the West wants to really send a strong message, kick Russia out of the Security Council, which, by the way, was created to ensure peace and stability. So to have a permanent member of the Security Council committing horrific war crimes and violating human rights left and right while accusing the victims is insanity. And by the way, Russia can be kicked out. In fact, the Russian Federation is not on the Security Council. It's the Soviet Union. Well, the Union of Soviet so Socialist Republics. They are on paper the permanent member on the Security Council. So Russia sits in the Soviet seat because it claimed to be the sole legal successor to the Soviet Union. But, you know, they notified the UN about this, but the UN has done nothing to investigate, corroborate or think through the implications, it simply acquiesced. So I'm no international law professor, but this is quite a big thing because this is, I think, more than enough grounds to at least explore expelling Russia from the Security Council since the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. So I'm sure that where there's a will, there's a way. I feel that the time for excuses has passed. So let's just, you know, remove them. 
from that position of power because it is indeed a position of power. I don't think they're ever going to forcibly remove a nuclear state from the Security Council. I do think that a lot of very old Western leaders are still completely obsessed with the Soviet Union. Though That much, I think, is still true. I'm going to get to say in this podcast like dozens of times how we are still stuck in World War II because we basically are still stuck in World War II. And the only other thing I have, this is my one opportunity to foist a literature figure <laughs> onto our, surely there's, we have like three followers that are also literature grads, so they will be clapping somewhere. Jacques Derrida, in 1993, around the time of the collapse of the Soviet party, wrote a book called Specters of Marx, and it was a joke premise. It was not a joke of a book entirely, but, well, if you know Derrida, you know he likes to joke. And the, the premise was, in the Communist Manifesto, the quote was, there's a specter haunting Europe, the specter of communism. And the joke in Derrida's book was, it's not communism haunting Europe anymore. It's Marx. Marx's ghost won't leave Europe alone. <laughs> and so that's funny, but the chapter list in the book from 1993 is 10 points that in his mind were not addressed by the conflict of capitalism versus socialism. And the list of 10 are underemployment rather than unemployment, deportation, in other words, new walls built to replace the one Berlin wall. Where have we heard that before? Some people like walls. Um, <laughs> economic warfare instead of military warfare, like sanctions. Uh, black markets and other free market contradictions like the illicit drug trade. You know how all of the world's heroin comes from Afghanistan, basically. Yeah. Uh, foreign debt, the international arms market, which is basically unregulatable. Nuclear proliferation because nuclear missiles are just knowledge. Anybody with the knowledge can eventually build one. You cannot contain them. And since he wrote this, Pakistan has had two military coups and they have lots of nuclear weapons. Uh, ethnic wars. We hear those all the time. Phantom states such as organized crime controlling previously legitimate governments, you know, like guys with stars on their shoulders and knees mulling around inside the Kremlin. And number 10 was the hypocrisy of international law when military and economic might are really the only judge of who gives justice and who receives it. And all of these are still relevant, and all of these are still the situation today. So maybe this will be the end. If no other good comes from all of this, maybe this will be the end of World War II. Maybe Western countries will finally wake up after 60 years of cruise controlling through the Cold War and realize that, no, really, the Cold War is over. You're going to have to figure out a different way. Because, you know, firing sanctions and debts and uh, land grabs in small countries back and forth at each other until things boil over and you have a real major conflict is pretty much what happened in World War I and World War II. And 
I hope there's not a World War III, but we're kind of just kind of aimlessly shuffling towards it, maybe. So hopefully it goes different this time. I suppose we'll see. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't think, as I said before many, many times, I, I don't think Putin wants to start World War Three. I don't think so. He's just not that crazy. He's evil, but not crazy and also not stupid. And yes, I guess some of the points are very valid because, look, it is a travesty at some level because while while Russian forces were doing horrific war crimes, this verified Twitter account, actually Dmitry Polyansky, who's a Russia government official, tweeted, in the light of Hina's provocation of Ukrainian radicals in Bucha, Russia requested a meeting of the United Nations Security Council on Monday, April 4. The nerve! I mean, <laughs> the nerve! He, they are laughing in our... Do you, this, is, this is what gets to me. They are doing things, they are escalating, and then we are scrambling to react, and I feel that our position is kind of weak, the West. We were fine two, three weeks ago, ago, we were on the right track. I feel that that's when we were doing well, you know, responding with military aid really fast. Now we are again uh, trying to react to the crazy Russia is doing. And Zelensky was right in regards to the United Nations Security Council. He said, and I quote, act now or dissolve yourselves regarding, you know, kicking out Russia, because I mean, it is a travesty. It really is. That's the only other thing that I, that comes to mind after everything I'm prepared for this episode, and everything you just said is Ukraine is fortunate to have a comedian as a president. And as Insane as that would sound, a few months ago, it's true because he doesn't have any political allegiance that will cause him to betray uh, his people. He doesn't want a ride on a private jet to go live in the U.S. and just surrender his whole country. He doesn't have, you know, any corporate benefactors that he owes his entire life to. He was a celebrity before he was president. So he can just be the president without owing anybody anything. And so in a strange twist of fate, I think Ukraine is lucky to have a comedian as their president. So he's really the only guy still that's doing a pretty good job. He's doing an amazing job. And I think, I don't know if it has anything to do with him being an actor and a comedian. I think you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think the fact that he has been so uh, moral and ethical and, you know, fighting for his people is a testament to his character. Let's not forget, we have had, unfortunately, a TV reality star as president, and that was not the case. So I think his profession has less to do, Zelensky's profession has less to do with his character and the way he has been handling this crisis. It's more of that's who he is. You know, I think, and I'm going to quote Michelle Obama here, she said at some point that becoming president does not change who you are, it reveals who you are. I think Zelensky always had it in him. This fight for his people, his nationalism, like in the good sense of the word, right? Not nationalism, like it's been perverted here and this concept of like, let's carry tiki torches and, you know, yeah. sing horrible chants and racist chants. No, but Zelensky is just 
a good guy and he's on the right side of history. And honestly, he's the one exception uh, to the whole media, uh, reality show, actor, people becoming presidents, which I do not approve of. But he is the one exception that I would always be happy to have, you know, as a leader. I think I think that's the gist of it. When we invent a time machine, we're going to turn the clock back and we're going to trade Reagan for Zelensky and things will be a lot better. Oh, yes. Oh, I would trade. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Zelensky. Zelensky can come anytime. Okay, let's not let's not let's not put that in because it's weird. Yes, I agree. Yes, I agree. I think the entire world loves Zelensky and there's no reason not to really. So I don't know what's next. We talked about Donbass. That's going to be something to watch. Definitely. The next big thing is going to unfold there. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully good for the Ukrainians, but it's going to be a difficult battle. As you said, I don't think it's going to be easy. I think it's going to get uglier and nastier before it gets better. And something that I feel might be important. There are reports that are suggesting that Putin wants his forces to seize enough of Ukraine or win this upcoming battle of Donbass by May 9, because that way he could declare victory on the Russian anniversary of Nazi Germany surrendering in 1945. You know, so (laughs) for him, it would be a symbolic thing, you know, and if winning the battle of Donbass will be too difficult to achieve before May 9th, he might be presenting the capture of Mariupol as a substitute victory to the Russian people. <laughs> Whatever the most ridiculous thing is, that's what's going to happen. And we were talking about this yesterday, that when Putin dies somewhere, they will take down statues of Peter and Catherine and put Putin in their place. Because it's ridiculous. And so that's what will happen. I honestly hope that uh, at some point the Russian people will be freed from this dictatorship and they will see the truth. And I, I have not lost hope that they might, they just might want to get rid of Putin and they might realize they've had enough of him. Hopefully. I don't know. But I think... Just to end on a more positive note, I think it's a good signal, though, that Finland and Sweden, despite threats from Russia, have decided to join NATO because Finland shares a border with Russia. And I'm pretty sure they have been rattled by this invasion of Ukraine. So Putin's efforts to maybe weaken NATO, also starting this war thinking NATO was weakened uh, after our last president, well, it didn't pan out. NATO is getting stronger and that makes me happier. And I think you mentioned earlier France. We need to keep an eye on France because um, the first round of the French presidential elections are not looking amazing. I mean, Emmanuel Macron did perform better than initially expected, but nowhere near as well as he should have. And Le Pen, she does have a real chance of winning the final round. And she is really cozy with Putin. And that is unsettling. So that's something to watch for sure. I don't think I have anything else. You got some books for us? Yes, as usual, I do have some. You books always for got us. books for us. 
<laughs> yes, and I think people should know we should uh, clarify this. We don't have a deal and we don't have any type of incentive. We just recommend books we like and books we believe in and books we, we feel are good reads for you guys. So the first book... Shh, don't, let, don't let her lie to you guys. She has one of those Audible accounts that lets her listen to everything. <laughs> <laughs> for money, I pay for it. I pay for my books. Nobody gives me anything for free, unfortunately. So, just like it is in life with anything. So, the first book I want to talk about is Ukraine versus Darkness. It's written by Alexander Sherba. He is Ukraine's former ambassador to Austria from 2014 to 2021. And he's a very accomplished diplomat. He's also a gifted author. So Ukraine versus Darkness is a must read if you want to better understand Ukraine, her history, and tumultuous relation with Russia. Now, the second book is called East-West Street by Philip Sands. This book is very current. In fact, Philip Sands explains in East-West Street that Lviv, the Ukrainian city, is the birthplace of the international law concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity, and we talked about that in this episode. So this is an exceptional book and very relevant now. Relevant always, but especially now. And of course, I'm coming back to one of my um, most favorite books of all times. Winter is Coming by Gary Kasparov. I do not have enough words or the right words to express just how important this book is. Kasparov described in 2015 what would happen in 2022. Down to the smallest details, I'll just read an excerpt from The Winter is Coming and you draw your own conclusions. Let us cast our net of responsibility where it may do some good. We turn to the leaders of the free world who did nothing to bolster the Ukrainian border even after Russia annexed Crimea and made its ambitions to destabilize eastern Ukraine very clear. Is the West to blame? Did they push the button? No, they pretended that Ukraine would not affect them. They hoped that they could safely ignore Ukraine instead of defending the territorial integrity of a European nation under attack. They were paralyzed by fear and internal squabbles. They resisted strong sanctions on Russia because they were worried about the impact on their own economies. They protected jobs, but lost lives. Would this tragedy have happened had tough sanctions against Russia been put into effect the moment Putin moved on Crimea? Would it have happened had NATO made it clear from the start that they would defend the sovereignty of Ukraine with weapons and advisors on the ground? We will never know. Taking action requires courage and there can be high costs in achieving the goal. But as we now see in horror, there are also high costs for inaction, and the goal still has not been achieved. The argument that the only alternative to capitulation to Putin is World War III is for the simple-minded. That's it. The only thing I have to say about my book recommendation is do not read Derrida. You are going to hate your life. <laughs> and the people who have read Derrida get that joke. So do not read Derrida. You are going to hate it, and uh, it's going to be confusing. But if by some chance you say, no, 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 I want to know more about Derrida, then check out Wes Cecil on YouTube. He is a uh, he's a literature professor in the Pacific Northwest, and he has wonderful lectures uh, all cut down to one hour about philosophy figures uh, from the past couple of hundred years. 
So check out Wes Cecil on YouTube and watch his Derrida lecture. And that's as good as you're going to get in an hour. And don't try to read it. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So guys, don't forget to subscribe to get our exclusive premium episodes. You can do that on dubiouspod.com or by clicking the link in the episode notes. Also, if you like us, a five stars rating and maybe even a review if you have a moment would really be helpful. We're at dubiouspod on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. Don't forget the 50% off for forever if you join our Facebook private group. And we have cool episode graphics there and also sound bites from our premium episodes if you want to check those out. So... Our social media is always open for you guys. We're going to wait for you there to interact with you. And that's it. See you guys next time.